Hello, I'm Peter Benziger, a third-year pediatrics resident here at IU School of Medicine, and I'm here with Dr. Adam Hill, one of our palliative care providers. Hey. We are going to talk a little bit today about some of the key points from the board's outline on ethics and palliative care, and we're going to do that kind of uh, looking at um, some of the question stems and then talking about some of the high-yield principles that come from that. For our first question stem, we have a young child that comes in um, with a known leukemia who is talking about their initial treatment, and the parents kind of bring up these questions about how toxic the chemotherapy is and whether they could use some other alternative medicines. So, Adam, would you talk to us a little bit about some of the bioethics that go along with how we help families make decisions? Sure. I think a lot of times these questions, when they're rooted in the board settings, are talking about the four principles of ethics. And so those would be autonomy, beneficence, non-maleficence, and justice. And so different takes on those are usually getting to the root of which principles are at play. And autonomy being the right of the, the patient and to make decisions about their personal medical care consistent with their values. But we often have to balance these against beneficence, which is our duties to act in the best interest of the patient, as well as non-maleficence that we first do no harm, and keeping in mind the principles of justice too, which is really about fairness and um, you know, looking at ways that we treat con uh, any conflicting interests of individuals in a fair and just manner. So a lot of times that's really the root of the question is what principles are at play and how do we balance those in the greater context of, of what is going on. Okay, so it sounds like uh, the teaching point here is make sure you recognize those four principles in the question stem and in the answers, autonomy, benefits, non-malfeasance, and justice. Yeah, and I think sometimes you'll get uh, additional prompts to discuss certain scenarios like what happens in the case of um, considering alternative medicines or alternative therapies. And, and I think then you really just need to rely on what, what they're really asking and what principles may or may not be violated. For example, promoting autonomy would be really getting to know the family and why are they making decisions, what are the underlying values that, that come into those decisions for families. But you also have to respect the fact that there may be therapies at which there aren't uh, great benefits uh, of doing, and so we would be violating our own principle ethics of acting in the best interest of the patient if we did not consider those. And, and then you obviously don't want to do any, any harm, and so if a patient has a very treatable medical illness, even like leukemia, which can be 90 to 95% curable, then you know offering treatment and pursuing standard treatment is is a way to, to mitigate harm or even death of that patient. So that's where non-maleficence comes in. So you really have to continue to balance those uh, depending on the specific question. So from a PEDS board standpoint, it sounds like you're kind of looking for those principles and the answer that honors them and balances them the best. And then I'll just say out loud that the ABP outline kind of recognizes certain things as um, complementary and alternative. So you'll see these as, as keywords, acupuncture, homeopathy, naturopathy, meditation, prayer, yoga, biofeedback, hypnosis. So if you're seeing any of those, then you're probably being asked a question about alternative therapy and, and think about those four principles. 
So our next question uh, stem to kind of prompt some conversation is about a 16-year-old young man who has uh, advanced progressive muscular dystrophy. He's had lots of pneumonias over the last couple months. He's got an advanced directive in place that says he would prefer a terminal extubation. So in the ICU, you've talked to the parents. They're clear that the advanced directive they agree with, and so they perform a, a terminal extubation. Um, and the question essentially asks about how you administer medicines and what would be appropriate medicines in this case. So let's use this question to talk a little bit about palliative care in general, some end-of-life treatments, and the doctrine of, of double effect. Sure. I mean, I think it's, it's important to, to realize that this scenario is, in practice, not that uncommon had this almost exact scenario come up within the last calendar year. And, and I think it's important to know that palliative care and the principles that we uh, practice come into play with end-of-life situations, but it's also more about the, the continuum for how we take care of these families over the length of their potentially life-limiting illness. Specific to uh, uh, this question is that, you know, in essence, you're, you're going to use uh, medications to, to treat symptoms, period. And you're going to use medications like a, a narcotic, uh, preferably morphine, to treat symptoms of air hunger, tachypnea, shortness of breath at the end of life. But we use the same dosing that we would uh, in any other context. So for IV medications, it would be 0.1 mg per kg. And for oral or enteral, it's 0.3 to 0.5 milligrams per kilogram per dose. And so really, you should take that away, that, that we're using the same milligram per kilogram dosing. We're simply using it to, to treat the symptoms. And the same is also true. We do this with a anxiolytic and Ativan to relieve anxiety, uh, feelings of shortness of breath, or, or visible distress as well, and we still use the same dosing for that as well as you would in any other context. The principle of, of double effect uh, is, is really talking about the intent in which you are using treatment. And so if there is a potential benefit of giving additional doses of the same concentration of medication to treat symptoms, then you should do that. So we treat to symptoms and we want to mitigate suffering um, by continuing to treat. And so that means in essence, if you need to repeat a dosing in 15, 30 minutes or an hour, as opposed to three or four hours, then, then that's justified if your intent is to relieve the suffering. You know, and, and then Therefore, you can justify potential other side effects, maybe increased drowsiness or decreased respiratory rate. But the intent is never to hasten death. It is just to treat symptoms. And, and really, there's a fair amount of evidence that would show, and anecdotally I can tell you this is absolutely true, that if you treat patients to the point of comfort, they actually live longer. Uh, which is often counterintuitive to what the fear of most people is have that we know we're over medicating we're going to hasten death or euthanize somebody and that just really isn't true people generally don't die you know when they're very actively uncomfortable <laughs> and so you know it's important to know that and to not be afraid that if somebody's uncomfortable you can continue to treat them with medication 
So I heard you say that we use opioids and we use benzos at the end of life. And the important kind of scope to recognize in this question was to treat to the symptoms and kind of with our typical dosing and to not go beyond that just because they're at end of life. And that when you do that, children and people dying actually tend to live longer. Yeah, correct. And, and so then you can, you can vary the interval depending on the needs assessment of, of what you're seeing. Okay. Thanks. And, and I would add, too, that on palliative care boards, and it may creep into APB, but that there's also the, the principles of, of doubling to, to treat symptoms as well. So if, if 0.1 mg per kg doesn't work, then the next dose you can go to 0.2 mg per kg. And then if that doesn't work, then you can go to 0.4. And, and that same principles, too, is that you can continue to escalate along those lines. All right, our next question is about another ethical question. It's about a young lady who comes to you. You kick mom out of the room at your appointment and kind of get a private history. She talks to you about some risky sexual habits, some drug abuse. And so then this question goes on to kind of ask, what would make you break confidentiality and, and tell her mom about some of those things? Dr. Hill, tell us about some of the, the, the principles here um, and, and why you'd have to break confidentiality. I mean, the, the, the biggest principle here is that obviously you want to, to maintain confidentiality with your patient, which is an agreement between you and, and the person you're caring for, for as long as possible and in, in, in the safest means. But there are clearly instances in which you you should break confidentiality and, and the complicating piece of this is that it really there are a lot of different mandates and regulations and from state to state and so you really should be in touch uh, with what are the the practice principles in your location and what you should do in these sort of contexts but but generally breaking confidentiality uh, revolves around if somebody is a harm to themselves, if they're a harm to other people, so suicidal, homicidal, um, dis- or displaying self-harm. And, and sometimes with chemical dependency or substance uh, abuse too, you, you uh, in mental health services, you, if, you, you may have to break confidentiality if you feel like that those are, um, there's significant harm being done. To the person, but a lot of states also allow minors simultaneously to be able to consent for STD treatment, for contraception, for their own recovery from alcohol, drug abuse, uh, or even mental health services and counseling, as long as uh, you feel that they're acting in their own best interest and that they're, you know, receiving the help that they need and they're not in immediate danger. And so I always encourage people that when I've, I've moved and lived in four different states and worked in different states, and it's always good to be in touch with what are the practice principles in the areas you live. It sounds like when we're thinking both practically, we need to leave space and time for the, for the patient to tell us the things that they want to be confidential. We have to be really clear about when, with them, when we would break it, and then... It sounds like suicidality, homicidality, 
and being abused are key things that we're looking for, both in practice, but also on boards, questions about reasons that we would break confidentiality. Absolutely. Thanks for bringing up that last point about if you suspect physical or sexual abuse in a situation too, and somebody discloses that, then obviously that's another situation where you, where you should breach that confidentiality. Okay, perfect. Next case, here's a, here's a great one, and actually one that you and I have talked about has occurred over the last year here at our institution. A young man, almost not a minor, 17-year-old young man, has a CF and some other kind of end-stage organ issues as complications. He is pretty clear about what he wants, and the conversation has been made hard based on his mom isn't quite there yet and doesn't quite agree with the best plan for him. So this brings up some great questions about concurrent care in children and what we do with advanced directives in children and what the principles are there and the preferred place of death, the like actual physical location for, for children and families. Tell us about that. A lot of times in, in our teenage patients, we, we clearly need to understand and listen to their perspectives and, and values and get their input into medical decision making. And this is often a concept that is discussed on boards, assent versus consent, and how do we manage those. In our world, when we're talking about children with potentially life-limiting illnesses in palliative care, the best practice is to is longevity and continuity with these families. And so, you know, palliative care, when done well, starts really early, and we can get to know these families, their values, and start working on uh, medical decisions long before the decisions actually have to be made, and sometimes several years in advance if you have somebody that has a potential life-limiting illness like cystic fibrosis. And, and that gives us time to be able to hopefully really draw out the goals, the wishes, the fears, the concerns of all parties, whether it's parental decision makers or the actual patient themselves, and try to bring those uh, parties to a, a consistent point where a common ground of medical decision making. And so that's when we do our job really well is that we can get families and patients all kind of together about what they, what they wish for. The principle, uh, well, the actual kind of mandate of concurrent care states that patients can receive palliative care services and hospice services, which is more the immediate or um, end-of-life care services, and still receive ongoing treatment, hospital visits, transfusions, ongoing chemotherapy, aggressive treatment options, and still receive the additional services of palliative care. And that's important. And, but unfortunately, that only lasts till patients are 21 years of age. Mm. And so, but in the pediatrics world, we often use that as a way to uh, to continue to foster a relationship and provide ongoing care and services while we introduce concepts of potential end-of-life care as well. And so, you know, in the example cited of, of this patient, it's important that we really get to know the from what perspective the patient who's a minor is making the decision, his understanding, his informed consent, his wishes, and then hopefully being able to bring the family uh, along to a point of understanding and common ground about what he wishes for 
so that ultimately they can make a unified decision for what's best, and even including withholding potentially life-prolonging therapies mm-hmm. like lung transplant or dialysis, things that may quantitatively extend their life but qualitatively damage the integrity of their life. And so, so those are important questions, and it starts by really having a relationship with the family. I think the, the last point you brought up on all that is getting to know the families too so you know what their end-of-life wishes are. And, um, and sometimes that's about where they would prefer to be at the last moments or days or weeks or months of their life. We find in the adult world that a lot of time, the vast majority of the time, that patients are outpatient or at home in hospice for end of life. In pediatrics, we see a mix where some families tend to want to stay in the hospital or be in you know, a a, an environment that's away from their home for a lot of different reasons. But we try to just help make those decisions with families based upon what they value and what their goals are. I like some of the key words you said. You said helping families make decisions long before the decision has to be made. So it sounds like that's one of the major principles is have these conversations early. So you'll see when you're reading your board's question, if there's an answer that lends itself toward early palliative, early conversations, early advanced directives, that's probably a hint that that one's right. You said this kind of idea of assent versus consent and advanced directives, so just pulling out some key things there that the the child, the patient, should be part of the conversation and that you're looking for kind of a a well-balanced family decision. And then it sounds like it's not quite as clear not all, it's not, the pattern isn't as clear in children where families typically want their child to pass as in adults. Usually adults, it's home, but children, it may not be the same, maybe in in the hospital. And, and yeah, so all of that is absolutely correct, Peter. And the one thing that question, and may not specifically be a board question, but I'm always asked when I talk about yeah. palliative care is, you know, how, how young is too young for patients uh-huh. to be involved in these conversations? Yeah. And, and we would tell you that, you know, we have goals of care and wishes conversations all the time with patients as young as four or five years of old. Huh. And, and that really is framed into the appropriate language and understanding of that's age appropriate. Mm-hmm. And so, but we often ask really open-ended questions and, and ask for kind of them, the, the patient at that young of age, to lead us in what they're thinking about, concerned about, what they're hoping for. And you'd be amazed at mm-hmm. the understanding of even really young children. We definitely, concretely, and anytime somebody is over 12 years of age, will ask for their even you know more informed decisions about what they wish for. But really, you can have these conversations in different contexts with help of child life and 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 other services to really get out wishes early in patients. And so, don't be afraid of that either. Okay. And, and maybe one brief example would just be to to say, you know, you know, what are you hoping for? What are you afraid of? And and I've had, you know, five year olds that would give you profound philosophical <laughs> deep answers to that on their levels of understanding, you know, uh, about what they really understand is going on. So, how do parents usually kind of respond to their answer and and integrate it into a best plan for their kid, like? 
have you been surprised by how parents respond? Yeah, I mean, I one of the more difficult parts of having those conversations often is bringing the families along to a comfort to be able to ask them. Is what we often find in pediatrics is this patient and parent that are both trying to protect each other from the mm. real reality of the, the information. Mm. And so oftentimes you have a, a mother or father says, I don't want to talk about it with him because I'm afraid it may take away his hope or it will cause harm. And then you have the patient candidly telling a medical provider, I can't talk to my parents about this because I'm worried uh, how they're going to respond and they're both kind of, we try to get them on the same plane because mm. really they're having the same conversations that they're both just afraid of, you know, what's going to happen. And But most times we find that patients, even very young, are just protecting their parents. That's amazing. And worried about yeah. what's going to happen to their parents, even after potentially they pass away. Yeah. And so I often find that families... Uh, are relieved and it mitigates some of their long-term guilt when they know that they can have these open conversations and communicate about what they're they're both feeling. That's really cool to hear that they can, young children even can communicate that well. Actually, good segue into communicating well. Our next and last case for conversation is about a 14-year-old young man who has erysipelas. You've prescribed an antibiotic, and it's been getting worse, unfortunately. So he comes back to your office, and when you ask about the antibiotic and have they been giving it, they say, well, we've been giving two of the three doses a day because uh, we're currently fasting due to our religious beliefs, so we're not giving the daytime, the kind of midday dose. And so the question prompts you with what's the kind of best kind of advice or action at this point. And uh, so why don't we talk about some of the communication and ethics principles and the cross-cultural things that we need to consider? Yeah, I think this this is a, a wonderful question because it exists in the day-to-day reality of all medical providers. And the answer here is almost universally to... Um, to go into these situations with a blank slate and to learn more about the cultural values and understandings of your patients before just mandating some sort of treatments. And so it really starts with an aspect of becoming more culturally competent yourself into, into what their belief systems, thoughts, values are, and how then you can communicate the how medicine will interact with their own system of beliefs and try to find a common ground at which you can still deliver the services that you need while respecting their own their own thoughts as well. You know, oftentimes, if, a, if a, in this specific example, if somebody is fasting for their own religious beliefs, then consider options of antibiotic therapies that may be just as efficacious for providing that will fit with their schedule and their and and how they're able to deliver the the medication. And so, you know, it really starts with understanding their voice, their perceptions, and and how you can and come together on a, a common ground and. And, you know, you may have to address conflicting views in a professional way and, you know, but, but always be conscientious that, that we, we live in a very diverse society and culture and people are going to have 
different ways uh, or different things to bring to the table. And you should respect that and find ways to, to uh, appropriately navigate those situations by getting to know them. And the, the you know the answer that the the prep question wanted here was exactly that like this kind of idea of find a way to understand more and find a way to make the medical fit care fit with their beliefs. I think one of the things that comes up in both in questions and in real life too is that sometimes we don't have time to make to to get to do a bunch of great communication and cultural humility. So, you know, you and I had a case over the last couple of years with an, um, someone needing an emergent blood transfusion. And so that's another kind of ethical question that comes up and might be posed on the board. So how do we think about that? So it, you still go back to your principles of ethics in those situations, and you want to fluently educate yourself to be culturally competent in situations of Jehovah's Witness, for example, or transfusions. But ultimately, if you're talking about the care of a, a minor and a, a patient who is a minor, and, and you look through your scenarios of ethics and not transfusing a patient for a, a, an illness that may be very treatable and without treatment could be fatal, then you you really have to um, you know balance those to be able to de deliver the the transfusions while communicating with the families to be able to mitigate harm to the patient while trying to successfully navigate their own beliefs as well. And so you know a lot of times the key tenet here is humility and communication and open dialogue and, and trying to continue to to find common grounds. But but you also just have to always keep in mind the best interest of your patient, what will benefit them, not causing harm to your patient as well. So these situations are always the ethical hot button topics to discuss and, and usually have individual uh, flavors that make them even more interesting to discuss, mm. but I uh, but I think you do right by yourself on the in the board questions by just hearkening back to your the, the principles that are at play. Excellent, thank you. So, kind of thinking back over our conversation, we talked about the major principles: autonomy, beneficence, non-malfeasance, and justice. So, thinking about your board's questions, pulling out those principles when it's these kind of ethical things. We talked about palliative care principles like involve it early, have lots of good communication, so any answer on the boards that has those involved is probably right. We talked about confidentiality, reasons to break it like abuse or harm to self, harm to others, and involving patients early, even pediatrics, in their care. And then finally, kind of cultural humility, so any answer that has things about understanding better or kind of meeting them halfway is probably kind of the answer you're looking for. Dr. Hill, really appreciate you having a conversation with us today. Thanks. Yeah, thanks, Peter. Appreciate it.